Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome back. It's always, uh, always fun when the class grows rather than shrinks on week two. So I'm not, not going to lie about that. And uh, at the same time, we do have handouts in the back. And uh, so if you did not grab those, uh, I want to encourage you to do so. Um, it's, it's good to be back with you all. Um, I'm, like I told you all last time, I'm studying the Gospel of Luke with four different groups. And boy, it's been fun. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I've enjoyed some of the questions that individuals in those four different groups have brought uh, to the surface and thought through. And at times we've had to come back and say, uh, let, me, let me go find something out and uh, come back next week and, and bring some answers next week. And so uh, I thank you for the study. I'm going to open up with prayer. What we're going to do today is we're going to review. Uh, they did not get last week recorded. And so we're going to review just for a few minutes where we were last week. You have a handout for last week now. And, uh, and then we'll actually look at the overview of, of where we're going uh, during the course of this semester. So kind of just cue for those who are recording, this is about where we'll probably start uh, today. So let, let's pray. Let's get started. Uh, Father in heaven, I want to thank you for uh, the, the gift that it is to study your word. And God, I, I thank you for uh, my brothers and sisters who... Uh, have taken time out of their morning uh, to dedicate themselves to that end. God, we, we want to study the book of Luke to discover not just more information, but God, to be transformed by those things that we learn about Jesus and by walking with him and learning more about him. And so, God, we pray that your spirit be involved in this process, that, God, you speak to us and you reveal yourself. We thank you for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, whether you were here with us or not, one of the things that we talked about is kind of a, I'm a visual learner, so I use this as kind of my visual framework of how to understand the book of Luke. And honestly, the more I've done this, even with my students at Ozark this week, the more I'm convinced that this is a good way to understand the book of Luke. Now, maybe you'll push back and we'll be like, okay, maybe I'll reframe that. But for right now, in my 40s, um, this is one of the, the visual illustrations I want to use to say, I think this is what Luke wants to do with us throughout his entire book. And I said last week that we can kind of frame it up this way, that Luke wants to invite us on a walk with Jesus. And so he wants to invite us on this walk, of course, that's going to start at the very beginning of the story, but eventually is going to get us to Jerusalem. And so we said Luke's entire story is kind of a quest narrative of Jesus trying to get to Jerusalem, his mission. And then part two in the book of Acts is the church's mission to go from Jerusalem back out to the rest of the world. And so last week, we probably talked about that for about 15 minutes. And if you're new, this is kind of a summary of that. But you'll notice this in your handout, that there is this progressive geography move out toward Jerusalem, and then in the book of Acts, out from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. So the illustration Luke invites us on is to walk with Jesus along the way. Here's the second image that we're invited to do, is to ask questions and discover who Jesus is and what he came to do, and probably in process, more about ourselves. So I'm just framing it up with a question mark. Like, as we walk with Jesus, we ask questions, and we discover. And we have our eyes opened Luke 24 is the only uh, place where we find this story post-resurrection of the two disciples. Cleopas is one of the disciples. 
who is walking, again, on a road out from Jerusalem toward Emmaus. And Jesus comes up. They don't recognize and explains the Old Testament in Jerusalem during the crucifixion and resurrection. Their eyes are opened, and they come to, here's kind of this last thing, and my illustration is a light bulb, okay? You can choose something you want if you want to choose something different. Um, That's a good light bulb, hey. Um, They come to a place of awareness, and they recognize Jesus. And they go, oh. And then they go back, and they actually give testimony to the fact that Jesus has risen. This has changed everything. And the more and more that I am actually speaking and talking about this paradigm of how to understand not only the book of Luke, but also, can I, can I say, this is Luke's paradigm for how discipleship works? Then I would say, I, I'm, I'm starting to see this other places in the Gospel of Luke. Can I, can I give you another example? Scholars say this about the Gospel of Luke. That the Gospel of Luke is somewhat unique from the other three Gospels in that it doesn't come out at the very beginning and like explain everything about Jesus and who he is. That you actually progressively learn who Jesus is along the way. Whereas like the book of John, can I give you a good example? The book of John, Gospel of John starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And you're like, oh, like, we're going to talk about Jesus who's all existent, and he created things. You to, like, get down the road quite a bit before he explains some of that for you. And so there are hints. We talked about Mary last week, where Mary, like, treasures up these things in her heart. But she doesn't know everything yet. She's like a mom with a 12-year-old boy. We're living in this world right now. We have a 13-year-old. who has a 12-year-old boy, Jesus, age 12, and he's doing some things, but she's like, what's this going to be? We have a 13-year-old boy. We're like, who's he going to be? What occupation is he going to have? I mean, he has a girlfriend right now. Like, what's that going to turn into? We just really don't know. And Mary's walking on the road, discovering some things about Jesus, and eventually she's going to have an aha moment. And so I want us to understand the book of Luke through this paradigm because what I want for you is actually that same experience is that I want over and over again, and this is true for me as well, no matter how many times I teach through the Gospels, if I walk with Jesus at times, he either reveals something new about himself or new about me or new about my world that I need to see. Now, I'm going to admit to you, not always is it like a drastic thing. It's not like one time I'm like, oh, Jesus rose from the dead, and the next time I'm like, oh, Jesus didn't. No, no, no. Like there's a core of who Jesus is that remains the same and remains steady. But you know this as well as I do. Like you can be in a relationship with someone for a long time and still be in the process of coming to know them. I don't know married couples in the room. Is that true at all? I mean, I've been married 20 years. My wife and I go on a walk. Um, We go on a walk often. We try to go every day. Today, we're second guessing whether or not we want to go on a walk. But COVID started us on that journey of going on a walk every day, two miles in our neighborhood, same journey. But I learned more about my wife on that walk than sometimes I do in the course of an entire day. This is the same thing. Walk with Jesus, discover Jesus, come to an aha moment with you. Pretty simplistic, isn't it? And so that's what we want to do over the course of the semester in order to be changed by him. Now, in your handout, um, the, the handout that says Journey with Jesus, and it has the schedule on the front page. Um, as much of what we with last week, if you're listening online, um, we'll plant some seeds that are similar to what's in that handout. But I want you to look at the schedule. Because what you actually discover is that we, for this first few weeks, are going to be, you know, the elude, the introduction to Luke's gospel, where he's going to talk about the birth narrative, and then he's going to talk about Jesus at age 12. That's really where we're going to spend some time today. Then we're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus, 
and as well as him going out into the wilderness. We're going to talk about that being the preparations for ministry. It's all kind of the prologue of Luke's gospel. At the same time, we're going to find some connections to this journey. But after that, after Jesus' baptism and after the prologue for ministry, I want you to notice three different sections in the book of Luke. Because I really think you can, you can actually structure Luke's entire book geographically through these moves. Notice the first section starts February 12th, and it's Jesus' journey in Galilee. Now, you may not know the geography or the topography of Israel, and that's okay. Can I simplify it for you? Okay, Galilee is to the north, and it's by a little lake that's only like seven, by, seven miles by 13. It's a little lake. You can see all the way across it. And it, there are mountains that surround it, Ozark Mountains, not Colorado Mountains, that surround this entire lake. And Jesus spends most of his time on the north side of that lake in a little city, Capernaum. His village where he's born, Nazareth, is kind of right over here. But general ge- geography, I just want you to know this is a region where Luke's gospel is going to start. And we're going to be studying most of our time in the first few weeks, if not first month, there. Then, March 5th, notice there's a a journey that starts. And Jesus starts traveling south to Jerusalem. As he's traveling south, this little river, the Jordan River, goes south. And then there's a little thing called the Dead Sea down here. No life lives there. Uh, In fact, it's so mineral rich that if, if you swim in it, there's showers to wash it off because it's incredibly toxic. If it gets in your eyes, you'll feel like your eyes are going to melt out of your face. It feels like an Indiana Jones kind of scene. Um, but you float in it because of how, how uh, uh, salinated uh, this, this Dead Sea is. There's a mountain range that's right here, and then Jerusalem is actually right here. The reason I tell you that is this is a wilderness. That Jesus... This is kind of wilderness here and out here. But Jerusalem, more mountainous region, this is more Midwest even though it's north. If we're thinking culture, this is the breadbasket. This is where they grow crops. This is mountainous, but it's also the capital. The rest of the is going to be going south to Jerusalem. So notice, journey to Jerusalem, journey to Jerusalem, all the way till we get to April 2nd, right before Easter break. And by the way, that's intentional. Because right before Good Friday, where we celebrate, and I did say that right, where we celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus. Think about how odd that is for just a moment. Because unless you have the resurrection, there's no reason to celebrate that. So just before we get to Good Friday here at church, which we will not meet on Easter Sunday notice, we will actually have Jesus right here on the cusp of Jerusalem, and he'll be rejected. And you're going to see over and over again, he gets rejected the closer he gets to Jerusalem. Then that's going to lead us, that journey to Jerusalem is going to lead us to the final journey, which is the journey in Jerusalem. And you know where that culminates. Now, it's kind of sad because we know the whole story. You've heard like those uh, narratives, those illustrations that preachers tell to where uh, the story of Jesus is told to a people group or an individual who's never heard the story of Jesus. Um, The Jesus film that was filmed back in like the 90s was shown to a group of people and they watched it and they were enjoying it all up until the point where they crucified and killed Jesus and then the people started to riot. And they had to like calm them down and let them watch the rest of the movie. And then they started to celebrate. So let's walk with Jesus and rediscover some things. But feel that tension as we move south toward Jerusalem. And as we get to Jerusalem, then of course, everything that's going to be significant in human history is the epicenter in that moment. And of course, then the book of Acts says, then you became my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and Judea, which is still this region, and to Galilee, and there to the rest of the world. So there's a move back in geography. So there's a little bit of a southward trend here. Now, just so you know in your reading, it's going to be kind of weird because it's going to say Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Can I just like give you this little tidbit in your reading? Because that throws us off a little bit. Because when we talk about geography and we say up, what do we normally think? Okay, we think north. So when I'm reading this, like the more and more I learned about topography and I hiked in Israel, like if you're thinking like up, that's what you're thinking is Jesus going north. But the entire time, the problem is he's going south. And you might go, well, it doesn't really matter. I know, I know it doesn't. But, but I want you to kind of picture that this is a real, this is really happening. And I'm going to say this again and again. Luke is portraying this in history. This is not a made-up fairy tale. And, and honestly, to me, going to Israel, I'm not saying you need to go. But I just want you to know this. Going to Israel and walking on the land made me realize this is like history, history. Now, I had known that. I had believed that. But, you know, I'd grown up with the graph Jesus and cartoon Jesus and the super book Jesus and all of these kinds of things. And, and, and yet, this made it more concrete. And I want to do that for you because Luke wants to do that for you. That's why he mentions kings and governors, politics, and geography, and topography. It's because, like, no, this really happened. I gave you eyewitnesses accounts of all of this. And so as he goes south, he's going up. But the reason up is topography and elevation. I mentioned that this is the lower fertile land. In fact, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea. Dead Sea is the lowest place on planet Earth that you can go. It's below sea level. That mountain range divides that from Jerusalem. So when you went up, you came down from Galilee, you went down to Jericho, and you came up the road, you climbed an elevation a significant amount to get up to Jerusalem. You're always going up to Jerusalem. Let alone in theology, Jerusalem is the top of the mountain. The temple is on the mount. And so there's a dynamic that when Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's always traveling up. I don't know that that's significant in the sense of uh, life-changing, but I will think it'll help you understand some things. So we end our time with this journey in Jerusalem. Notice we get to April 30th. If we make it to that, or if you make it or I make it to that point, um, we make it to April 30th. And then we actually have this small journey. It's like, okay, so let's leave Jerusalem and what matters? What's the difference? And that's that little story I told you that's this paradigm. Now that Jesus has risen from the dead, what difference does it make? And it makes all the difference in the world. And so Luke ends the story with the journey by having another journey. And then his part two, the book of Acts, is an entire journey. We're like the church is journeying with Paul, and they're going out to churches, and they're taking this message all the way to Rome. So Luke likes to hike. Can I just kind of put that out there? Like Luke likes the walk. He likes to travel. And some of you like to travel and discover things as well, and he wants to take you on that process. Um, the, the other thing that I wanted to, to mention and, and re-highlight from last week that's really important, if you, you missed, I think this will be good for you. Otherwise, you can read through this number one handout, is that in the beginning of Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, as well as in that little story of them hiking to Emmaus, you have a word that repeats itself, and the word is to know or to recognize. And I told you last week that that is this theme. So Luke says, I write these things so that you may know with certainty the things that happened. That's that word know. So that's that bracket at the beginning. And then the bracket happens again at the end when Luke says, and they opened their eyes and they recognized Jesus. It's the same Greek word. And for Luke, I want you to know that is one of the things he's trying to do. I'm writing these things so that you might know. Hike with Jesus. And when you hike with Jesus, you come to know. So 
I've said those things multiple times. Let me ask you now um, questions that you have from this introduction I've given today and a little bit of review. Questions you have or observations you have. So let me, let me ask more on the personal level. How is this true? If, how is it true in your life that the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you come to know him and the more aha moments that you have? Can, can I ask you that question? Like, how has this been true in your life? In this paradigm is the reality, I don't have to know everything, that that's actually normal. Like, that's one of my tensions that I had even as a young disciple is that I felt like I had to know everything and the older I've gotten and the longer I've been a disciple of Jesus, the more I've come to terms with the fact that I'm never going to know everything. And it's about the journey. And it's, about, and it's about following Jesus along the way, not necessarily having all the right answers. Maybe that's my personality. And, and maybe that's my own, like, error of thinking. But, but I, I kind of thought that I'd live in this realm as a disciple and actually live most of the time in, like, these two realms. And I have these moments but, but I actually look at the disciples who are walking with Jesus and, and reckon he's right there with them. And they live in these two most of the time as well. And I just want to go, that's okay. Because when I go through valleys and mountaintops, I can trust that he is there with me and he's walking there with me. And, and I think sometimes they do lead to those. But I think the norm as a disciple is right here. And, and that, to me, that's been helpful to be content with that. Other things that this brings up in you are causes you to reflect on. There, there is where my kids get them. Like, they should be getting this by now, right? Like, they're, I mean, and I don't want to throw my kids under the bus, but like, they're 16, 13. Like, how, they've, been, they've been on this journey for a bit. They should be getting this now. Like, they should trust me that I love them and that I want what's best for them. And they should just obey me and respect me because, like, no, they should know all the things that I do for them. And yet they're like the disciples and they're like me with God the Father. Where I, I'm like, and, and I just, like, I, I want to normalize that because I think one of the things we do, Jim, you touched on this, is sometimes we cause people to think that they have, it, have to have it all figured out in order to be accepted as a disciple of Jesus. And that's just not the answer. The norm is actually that you're still figuring it out, but that you have your own journey even to figure it out. Because we're going to see the disciples all come to Jesus differently. They, they all walk with Jesus and need their own little path and Jesus to light their path in a different way. And that's one of the things I love about all the disciples. They're not, first of all, they're not perfect, but they all have their different ups and downs. And they come to Jesus, and he walks with them, and he's patient with them. And he calls them to truth. He calls them to, to, write, you know, to write themselves, um, but he's patient with them, and I, and I appreciate that. that. That process of maturing, I, I tell students this often, like, God is building a cathedral in you, but it's a brief time. And so you just have to say yes one step at a time and just trust that it's going to be a – he's going to lead you. And I don't know why this is true. I mean, I thought in my 20s by the time I got to 40 that I'd have it all figured out. And now that I'm in my 40s, I'm like, no, I still have, like, some bricks to put. And, and you know this, the people who built, especially in the Middle Ages, we don't build things like this anymore, but the people who built the cathedrals, they would start it knowing that they were nev- never going to finish it in their lifetime. Like, what faith is that? And that's this kind of faith that goes, I'm never actually going to arrive, but it's going to be who, the me I want to be, that God is wanting me to be. I'm going to be moving that direction. And honestly, I'm going, my kids are going to have to finish some of the cathedral. Like, I'm hoping to move my kids and my family and, and honestly, people that I disciple, I'm hoping to move us down the road and be a part of the lane of the bricks of this cathedral that's something way bigger than me. I mean, it's the church, something that's way bigger than me. And there's a faith component to that. That's every step of the way. Well, I hope that what we can do is, is continue making some of these little connections to your walk. 
Um, you'll notice in your, your, again, introduction big handout, I've reviewed some of the things that become themes. Um, but actually, in your second handout, we're going to start into chapters one and two, and, and we'll come back to some of those themes. You can read through those. We'll come back to some of those as they come up in the book. The first one that comes up, though, is in chapter one, verses one through four. So let's, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up to that. Um, and we're actually just going to walk through the first two chapters of Luke today, and then I'm going to forecast for you some of the information that's going to come in chapters three and four, so that as you read it this next week, um, chapters three and four, uh, you can kind of be on the lookout for some things. So I mentioned to you chapter one, verses one through four last time is a, a bit of a prologue, an introduction that's very similar to the prologue in the book of Acts. And that in this prologue, there's a name. The name is Theophilus. The name means lover of God or God's friend. And, and it may be a historical person. I think that it is. Or maybe it just is in general saying to all people who love God. I think it's probably a historical person because of the phrase, the most excellent Theophilus. That's a title that someone would have in the Roman world. And I think he probably financially uh, backed this uh, I'm trying to think of what to frame it up as, um, Luke's project to, to go out and get eyewitness testimony and then write this down. I think he financially backed that. And, and I don't know. That's conjecture. But either way, I'm grateful for the fact that we have this. And Luke, as he traveled, had opportunities to interview people like me, who will come up a little bit later this morning. And so some of the unique material that Luke has in comparison to Matthew or in comparison to, uh, I mean, John, John, or excuse me, Mark doesn't even mention the Christmas narrative. He just jumps right into the beginning, John the Baptist. And, and John goes all the way back to creation uh, and tells the whole story, backstory of creation. Um, so they're all different in who, what stories they, they have access to. Um, but Luke says, I'm writing this orderly account so that you may know with certainty the things you've been taught, Theophilus. Um, so again, he wants to put this into history. We mentioned last week that the orderly account is orderly in both chronology and in geography. So sometimes he'll organize it by chronology. Birth happened first. Then this happened. He was age 12. Then the baptism. Then we have the temptation. But other times it's organized more by its geography, and he'll add teachings of Jesus that were similar from different locations into that one location. And that's just a normal way to write history in the first century world. And we do some of the same things, by the way. Like we'll talk about the teachings of Abraham Lincoln or the the speeches of Abraham Lincoln, and they won't necessarily be in chronology. It'll be more thematic in the way we we write the biography. So that's fairly common. We want to look out for that. Then notice verse 5. And this is kind of, this is where we now officially start new. And, and if you're on the ride for the podcast, you can get these handouts. But, but as, if you've, by the way, read um, this week, chapters one and two, I'm going to ask you, what, what did you observe? What did you learn? What questions did you have here in just a minute? So you might, might want to start thinking about that. If you weren't here with us, you have a little bit of catching up to do, but we will have you for next week read chapters one through four, okay? But verse 5, notice what we have in the first, uh, kind of the first opening line other than the prologue, is we have what? A historical statement. Because Luke is saying, I'm writing this eyewitness account. It makes sense to couch this in history. And so he said, in the days of Herod, this is Herod the Great, right? King of Judea, that's where Jerusalem is at. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and his wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were righteous before the Lord, walking blameless in all the commandments and statues of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were advanced in years. 
Can I pause here for just a moment and say, wow, there's a lot in that. So what do you observe? Now, I'm not looking for the right answers, but what do you notice in just that little opening line that Luke is trying to do according to some of the things we've already talked about? I don't know that I have like an exact answer I'm looking for either. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's this family lineage. Here's one of the things I think Luke does in the book of Jesus being age 12 is Luke is very intentionally trying to show, and again, it's history, but he's trying to prove that Jesus does not come from a rebellious faction of Jewish people, but instead from a faithful, notice what he says, both of them were righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the, statutes of the Lord. Now this is Zechariah and Elizabeth who are going to give birth to John the Baptist, but guess what? The same things are going to be said about Mary and Joseph. And the same things are going to be said about every character around this little birth of Jesus that's going to take place. One of the things Luke is trying to teach his audience is that, that Jesus didn't come from this rebellious uh, faction of Jewish rebels. He's actually like part of the faithful remnant of Israel who was waiting for God to keep his promises. So, so recognize that when we get to the book of Acts, where the church is being accused of causing riots, you see why this is important? Because in the book of Acts, the church is accused of, of causing riots and splitting off from Judaism and doing something that's this rebellious new religion. And Luke is actually saying, no, this isn't a new religion. This is actually the faithful outpouring of Judaism. And Jesus comes from those who were following God faithfully. Go into sacrifice, go into prayer, circumcising their child, coming into worship at Passover. So notice all of these little stories around Jesus' life. These stories are proving and showing that Jesus comes from a family that was just trying to be faithful to God's promises and that he is a fulfillment of those promises, not a rebellion against those. Does that, does that make sense why Luke would paint that picture and, and prove that and show that through his historical account? Okay, so we have, we have a priest. Now, you need to know this about the priests because I don't know that I was quite clear on this and even kind of my own you know, cartoon version of the Bible, which is just what I grew up on. Not all priests were bad. Can I just say that? Like sometimes in like, you know, The Chosen or some of these other movies, like we have like pers- personas where they're flat characters. Now, The Chosen's actually better at this, of creating whole characters rather than flat characters. But some of the ones I grew up on, like all priests were bad, all Pharisees were bad, you know, and you just had the bad guys, right? It's almost like Darth Vader music would start to come on when those guys would walk out, and you're like, oh, no. But not all priests were bad. In fact, they were were kind of, Josephus, a historian, he's Jewish, but he's also kind of Roman. He's politically aligned to Rome. He talks about priests, and he says there were about 20,000 priests during this time, 18 to 20,000. And he said, you had to recognize there's a difference between the priestly family that lived down here in Jerusalem, at a palace down in, in, in Jerusalem, and all of the other priests that lived all the way throughout the rest of the kingdom, the 20,000 of them. Because what would happen, the high priestly family actually had the political and financial people. They were financially acting, uh, benefiting from people's sacrifices and uh, offerings. That's why Jesus cleanses the temple. Remember the whole money exchange moment where they're exchanging? In fact, there's some, as we come to like shepherds in the fields out here, outside Jerusalem, there's some speculation that these were the exact fields where the shepherds were, where the shepherds were raising the sheep for the high priestly family who would profit off of them because you'd travel down and they'd go, hey, that sheep's not worth it. You need to get one of our sheep. 
oh, it's going to be more expensive because your sheep's not as good. And then you'd have to exchange your money for their money, and you'd have to pay an inflation rate. You perhaps know some of these things. But Zechariah and his family and all the other priests throughout the rest of the 12 tribes would not necessarily benefit financially. In fact, some of them were so poor that they were begging for food because they were not, which is according to the Old Testament, not getting that money back out of Jerusalem. We'd call that an unjust system. We see that in our world today sometimes, right? Can I just say that? Okay. Like even having conversations the other, the other day, I was walking, I'm like, that's just not good. Right? Like sometimes those who profit off of people set up the system to profit off of people so that no one else gets the profit and it's not shared. Can we just acknowledge that? Okay. Now, recognize not a political statement against it, but it's just recognize this is true in our corrupt world. So Zachariah and his family are not part of that system. And, and Luke is painting this picture that here's this old guy. And sorry if I said old, I should have said older. Here's this older guy. The older I get, older is getting older. All right, that's how that goes. Like, I thought 43 was older until I turned 43. And then I'm like, no, it's more like 83. There you go. Um, and, and so my grandpa was 92 when he passed away. And I'm like, boy, I still have that long to go, possibly? Wow, okay, I have no idea. Um, I'll tell you a side, stupid story. I did a funeral for a lady who was 103. And I was 25. Her daughter came, who was 83. And I remember being 25 going, wait, I thought that was the same generation recognizing it's two different generations. We're, we're the first in church history to live and worship with five generations in the church because of life expectancy. That's weird. No wonder we struggle with generational issues in the church. Anyhow, that aside, Abijah is one of those who would have come over and over again to serve in the temple, but this particular task only happens once. Fall to him on this time. And I think God at times has sovereignty even over what we would call coincidences, right? You know that this is true. And I've just seen this in my life enough where I go, um, that was weird. Just weird enough to go, and it's not all the time. I mean, sometimes I feel like people make it up a little bit, but there's sometimes where you're like, no, that was too weird. And this is that kind of a moment where the lot falls to him he goes for the first time in his old age into the temple, and he's praying. And could you imagine in this moment, you're an older guy, your heart's already having a hard time, and all of a sudden someone's talking to you in the middle of the temple. It's dark in there. All of a sudden someone's talking to you, and you're like, whoa, what's happening? Now, this is Gabriel, and I want you to hear this, because Gabriel, angels are a little bit weird. Can we just acknowledge that in the Bible? Like, the Bible wants to reveal Jesus to you, not necessarily every answer that you want for every question. I don't know that I like that, to be honest, as a person, but I'm going to trust God with that. Like, I want the Bible to answer. Okay? So, so hope that, like, I hope that you know that it's okay for you to wrestle with that. Like, where did demons come from? The Bible's like, well, they exist, and there's, there's actually a hierarchy of them, and angels exist, there's a hierarchy of them. But actually, I want you to focus on God and Jesus. You're like, yeah, but what about the angels? I know, but I want you to focus on God and Jesus. You're like, oh, okay, <laughs> right? And, and so this angel appears. Now, here's what I want you to hear, though is Gabriel in the Old Testament is in the book of Daniel in a story where Daniel is praying. Now, I want you to hear this echo. Daniel is praying for Israel to be brought back to justice and to right standing with God. And he's praying a prayer of repentance that's going to sound a lot like Zechariah's prayer. When Zechariah sings a song and prays later, this angel is the same angel. 
there does seem to be a hierarchy of angels, angels that would be kind of the, the over-angel or archangel is what we would call them, and over a city or over a people. And there do seem to be, Jesus indicates that like children have an angel, whether we would call that maybe a guardian angel, but I just don't know. There's a mystery to that. And I'll be honest, like sometimes I kind of wonder, Hebrew says we sometimes entertain angels, but sometimes we encounter angels and don't really even know what that, that we did. And I, I just don't know. But can I just say that sometimes there is a mystery there? I have to be okay with that. But I also need to open my eyes at times to recognize God is sovereign, and he's probably protecting and looking out and navigating and sovereign over situations, and that they are part of him providing. So they are always a part of God's doing. That's why we look to God and not to them. You recognize there's a fault when we start to worship them and not God. So that story is here, and we, we're probably familiar with this story of Zechariah, and if not, that's okay. But notice we have some Old Testament echoes as well. They're older. Does that I'm sure it does. It sounds a little bit like Hannah. I was just reading 1 Samuel and the story of Samuel's birth, this child who's going to live and reside in the temple with the high priest Eli, and he's going to be a prophet who's going to bring about anointing the king, Saul, and then David. There's these little echoes. Can I just tell you those echoes are interesting? Because we're going to have a child, age 12, who's going to be separated parents, found where? In the temple with the leaders of the temple. It's going to sound a lot like Samuel the prophet. And this little boy is going to end up, we know by his genealogy, being the son of David, the king. He's going to be the messianic king. So he's both a prophet and a king. And this little story is kind of this Old Testament echo going, it's a God wink is what I call it of God going, I've got this. I've been doing this all along. And the promises from the Old Testament that Zechariah and others have been waiting for are now unfolding right before your eyes as you walk with God. And there's a part of me that goes, and yet we are still waiting. Here we are anticipating God to bring Jesus back. And there are times in my brokenness where I see injustice in the world where I'm waiting for God to bring Jesus back. And we're not alone. Did you know the beginning of the book of Luke is all about waiting and anticipating? Guess what they're doing at the beginning of the book of Acts? Waiting for the Holy Spirit for two chapters. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And then what are we doing in our book? Waiting for Jesus to come. So Luke is like discipleship. When you walk with Jesus, it's kind of like this. Some just have to wait. And then he opens up your eyes. And so that, that's true in this story. So we have this vision. And in the midst of this, then we also have Gabriel come to Mary. And I love this little dynamic where um, as the angel comes to Mary, Mary says, notice verse 38, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In the Old Testament, there was a phrase, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. I know a bit of Hebrew, but not enough to be considered a scholar. Um, but the little phrase is this phrase, here I am. Samuel said that. When God was calling out to him, he went to Eli, who's calling me? Are you calling me? No, I'm not calling you. figures it out pretty quick. I think God's calling you. When God calls you, say, here I am. The little phrase is Hineni, if I'm pronouncing that right. Hineni is the same thing that Abraham said, here I am. And it's actually this phrase that we have that, that Mary echoes, if not literally in her language, I think at least when it comes to her response in her heart. Here I am. Let it be to me according to your word. Let me be your servant. And use me according to your will. And we recognize in this moment that Mary is called then to bear and be the mother of the Messiah that's to come. Notice the Holy Spirit in all of this. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. 
the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is always the one who is bringing the, we would say, the, the power upon a servant to accomplish a task. So the Holy Spirit rushes on Saul when he gets ready to go out and go to battle. It rushes on David. It comes upon Samuel. And this is true when God is, is Samson. We see the same thing. The Holy Spirit rushes. Eventually, the Holy Spirit fills us, doesn't it? There's a difference. Because rushes on or, or comes upon is kind of for a momentary task. But to fill is actually to then become a temple and walk with the Spirit. There's a difference. But the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary. Now, maybe we ask the question like, what about the virgin birth? Because that's a little bit weird in chapter 1. Can we just acknowledge that? It's a little bit weird. Um, but yet, I want to ask you this question. If the Holy Spirit, who hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter 1, was able to bring new life from nothing, can the Holy Spirit, who comes upon Mary, bring new life out of nothing in Mary? To me, the answer is yes. Now, in my own crisis of faith, I just want to be real with you on the walk. In my own crisis of faith, where I ask these questions, and I go, this is kind of weird. Or if I'm talking to like a family member, and I'm like, that's just weird, Jim, that you believe that. Can I acknowledge that sometimes I go, yes, it is a little bit weird. Can I also admit, it's just a little bit weird that we even exist on planet Earth. Like that life itself exists. Like that's a little bit weird when you think about the probability of it with taking God out of the equation. So part of what I've had to do, even in circumstances like this, is back up and ask some core questions in my own journey. Can I ask this question first? Did Jesus historically rise from the dead? That that to me is a verifiable historical question can go to history, and I could try to verify as best as I can anything in history, by the way, including my own birth, which apparently happened on December 9th, according to birth certificate, a historical document that says that that happened on that day. And according to eyewitness testimony, the doctor who's on there, and like my mom, right, that I can ask. But recognize that we take often historical data, and then we accept it as true, based upon the evidence. I have to do the same thing with the resurrection. And like the the Rubicon and Caesar Augustus and Julius Caesar's assassination, like historical evidence has to be evaluated. And Luke says, that's why I'm writing this down. So that you have the evidence and we have external evidence as well. So to me, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this to share this. In my faith, when I come to core questions of like, is this really real? The resurrection is where I start. Second building block to me is creation. Is this an accident? And did the, Or did this happen with design and intent? Now, I can start with that core question and start to wrap other truths. So if it happened with the design and intent, who was the designer and the intender? And I can wrap some more truth around that. And I think the Bible ultimately reveals some of that as well. And I can wrap some of that around that. But those two historical dynamics to me, for my faith and my walk, have been this light bulb moment multiple times. I come to other difficulties. This is just weird. But if I believe that God can create life out of nothing, and if I believe that God can create life where there was death, then I also believe that the Holy Spirit could come upon Mary and provide life where there was nothing that would normally create life when it comes to what we would call the scientific method or rationalism. Uh, naturalism wouldn't be another term to put there. Okay? So the problem of the virgin birth to me isn't much of a problem because of what I believe about God. And so I want to unpack some of these things for you as we walk through it. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this when it comes to uh, where we'll go next week is you're going to study the, gene- uh, the genealogy of Jesus. 
So I want you to notice next week in the genealogy of Jesus, we'll come back and, and talk about it, that Luke says Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. There's an adoption that Luke recognizes, that Joseph recognized, that Mary recognized. It's another subtle way of of alluding to uh, the virgin birth of Jesus. So we have this dynamic that is there where Jesus, both legally through Joseph, biologically through Mary, is the one who's coming from the line of it. Yet at the same time, this is going to be no normal child. Luke doesn't yet unpack what John's gospel does, because we're on a walk, that he is both human and divine. Notice that Luke hasn't unpacked that yet. That doesn't mean that's not true. Luke just wants you to get there eventually. John just comes out right and says it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He just comes out right and says it. Okay? And so I want us to allow Luke to take us on the journey. But Mary now is going to start to ponder these things like a mom. What's going on? And she's going to start collecting these little statements and these little truths on her own journey. And Mary is set up in Luke chapter 1 as an ideal disciple. Sometimes in the Protestant church, we've actually devalued Mary as a reaction to the Catholic church. Can I just say this? Like we've kind of set her off to the side and said, oh, there's not much to learn here. And actually, and Mark, Mark Christian did, did this for us even through Christmas. Like he actually re-elevated her, and I, I want to re-elevate her properly to go, no, no, she's held up not as like equal to Jesus the Messiah, but held up as an example of a disciple who walks with God, walks with Jesus, asks questions and has revelation, and comes to aha moments. I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me. I have no idea what this is going to be. Oh, he's going to be the Messiah. Great. And even her little songs, full of Old Testament allusions. If she's 16, 17, around in there, Mark was saying maybe 13, 14, 15. We don't know. She's young. Girls will get married at an early age. It's probably why Joseph isn't around when Jesus is an adult. He's older. Uh, may have passed away. Life expectancy is not very old. I don't, we don't know how much older he was. Um, and let alone he's a blue-collar carpenter, which means more than woodworker. It means construction worker. Might have worked with stone as well. Rough life. Poor family. So he's probably gone early on in Jesus' life. But she writes this song that we know as the Magnificant, right? Um, and really, it's just taken the opening line. My soul magnifies. There's that word. Okay, We throw Latin labels on it right? because of church history. But that little song of Mary is full of Old Testament history. Here's this young girl, 15, 16, 14, 15, 16, 17, and she knows her word, the Bible. She knows Scripture. But she's also like Zechariah and Elizabeth who are waiting for God. Because here's this, here's this text, or her this song, and it's all full of all of these songs and quotes from the Old Testament where people are waiting on God to do something to save them. In fact, what I'll notice is it's reversal. You have, you have taken me, humble, a servant, and you've on state and you've up. And you've taken the poor and your servant Israel. Notice we have Mary the servant and the servant Israel, and you've elevated what was humble and humbled that which was elevated. You know what the whole story is going to be in the birth narrative? King Herod, Caesar Augustus, Mary Joseph Jesus. Like her little song, part of the reason I think, I wonder if she sang that song over and over again. Like later on in life, I'm guessing she did. When did she write it? I think she could have written it, the couple-day journey that it took for her to get back from Elizabeth's house down in Jerusalem, back up to Bethlehem. I mean, she's reflecting on all that God is doing, and she's using lines from songs and scripture that she already knows. 
You, you would do this at times, pray prayers that have context from other places. And so we have this song that is here, and it's all what I would say is a reversal of what God is doing. He's reversing things. The people who seem important aren't important anymore. And the people who are humble, this is who God is looking after. You know this is what Jesus came to do. The whole rest of the story, you know the people Jesus is going to sit with and eat with? He's going to eat with rich people and poor people. Guess who he's going to elevate? The poor person. Insiders and outsiders. Guess who he's going to elevate? The outsider. So this theme of Mary's song, of what she picks up on as a young girl, is exactly what the Messiah came to do, and it's part of her journey of understanding this. Does she understand Jesus going to the cross? No. Because that little truth is going to pierce her heart. Man, I can't imagine. Do you know the one person Jesus looks out for the most when he's on the cross is his mom? When he's on the cross, and there's one of his disciples, John, John the Beloved, his, I think it's his best friend. And he gives his mom to his best friend for him to be her, uh, you know, her benefactor, the one who looks out for her. That's, that's life insurance. That's social security in the ancient world. You're now her son. She's your mom. Look out for her. He is in agony, and he's looking out for this young, or this older, frail woman who has had so much anticipation and hope in what he's going to become and so much brokenness in that particular moment. And, and this is that song. I, I wonder if he, she even sang this. Um, I have a song from Prince of Egypt. It's the River Lullaby. Hush now, my baby, be still, no, don't cry. Uh, that movie, that soundtrack was something I really enjoyed when I was a kid. And that little song, I sang that over my three kids when they were growing up. Now they kind of know that little song. And they're like, oh, that's dad trying to put it. Like, I wonder, this kind of song. Luke actually records multiple songs. Notice he records Zechariah with a song. It's, he calls it a prophecy. And the theme is similar to that. And the theme is really that God will come and he'll deliver his people. And again, we have the echo of those who look like they're in control are not going to be in control. And God is going to come into this dark world and he's going to bring the one who is the promise the last line of darkness of death, sound like Psalm 23, and guide our feet in the way of peace. He's going to guide our feet to walk in the way of peace. And so chapter, chapter 1 ends with all of these people who are singing these songs of faith, uh, trusting that God is about to do what he said he's going to do. Then notice chapter 2, verse 1. And in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus and all the world that everyone should be registered. And, and it kind of sets in motion this entire theme. Notice chapter 2 starts out with Caesar Augustus. And then what does it go to after that? What's the next scene? Shepherds in the field. Who gets to come and worship? Caesar Augustus or the shepherds? It's the shepherds, isn't it? The shepherds who were, um, at, at the very least, seen as lowly. I don't know that they were quite as despised as what sometimes we who preach and teach make them out to be. That was true a little bit later in history. Um, this was still somewhat of a reputable, but it's not necessarily a clean job. And it's, it's definitely not, when it comes to like power and authority, that kind of a job either. And yet, David was a shepherd, the king. Right? God is pictured as a shepherd, and the indictment of the leaders of Israel is that their shepherd really take. And so there's this like echo says, God is looking out for his people, and he's bringing about a Messiah who's going to look out for his people. Jesus is going to say, I'm the good shepherd in the book of John. I care for my sheep. My sheep know my voice. And they're the ones who are invited to the Christmas story, not the emperor 
who's over all of, all of this. So we have this contrast that moves back and forth uh, between those who are in authority and those ultimately uh, who are considered outsiders or those who are considered lowly. And so even in this little story of the shepherds, we have this continuation of this theme. Um, I don't know if you know or not, in Ezekiel chapter 34, there's a story where there's a prophecy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. And the, the prophecy says this, you have you've fattened yourselves You've profited off of the sheep, but you don't care for them. You just care for yourselves. And that's, in a nutshell, what the 10 or, 10 or 11 verses there say. And, and actually, in history, we have some good examples of that. Just, I think it was two years ago, there was a ship. Suez Canal, I think, was where this was at as well. I'd have to go back and look at it. But there's something like 10,000 sheep that died one day. It's because they stacked them in crates on top of this ship in the port. And the, the shepherds who were responsible for these sheep um, decided that they wanted to fit as many on the ship as possible, more than what the ship actually allowed, so that they could profit off of these sheep getting to the next port and get the money from these. And it sunk the ship right there in the harbor. And so there's these tragic visualizations of these sheep being poured, pulled out of the water, and all of them, I mean, just tragic loss. You, you even think of like a little bit of this, of this shipwreck. And... And I remember like reading that story going, no, no, that's exactly what Ezekiel is talking about. It's like shepherds who like financially wanted to profit off of the sheep but don't really care about the sheep. And, and Jesus is actually going to have some pretty harsh words about those who are leaders in Jerusalem because he sees them as the same way. And, and so we're going to see this contrast back and forth between those who are in power and those who are not in power. Um, and, and Caesar Augustus is part of that. Uh, this does give us a time frame, by the way. Around 4, 3 BC is around the time frame. That's when Herod the Great dies, is about when this story takes place. Sometimes we get asked the question, well, is Christmas on December 25th? We don't know. Can I just be honest? It, it, scripture doesn't really need, to, like, need us to know exactly when that date is. Um, but there is, one, there is one hypothesis that says maybe, and then there's another argument that says no. Here's one, the argument that says no. Shepherds are out on the field at night, and it's, it's cold in Israel as, as it is here this time of year. Can I just say this? Sometimes when you're like a blue-collar worker, you have to work outside in the cold no matter what. Can I just say that? Okay, ask the highway, like Missouri Highway, uh, you know, the people who work out there. Uh, that said, tribe of Abijah, there is some historical record, okay, that puts the tribe of Abijah serving in the temple nine months before around December 25th. So there is some evidence that it quite be possible that it was around December when Jesus was born. We don't know. As you trace church history, it looks like Constantine likely, okay, around uh, 300s, 325, likely starts worshiping, uh, celebrating Christmas, excuse me, uh, celebrating Christmas around that time of December and makes it a, uh, about the same time that they actually started making Sundays a day off for people. Um, and, and so that seems to be about the timeline of that. Again, I go, it doesn't matter in the scheme of things, but it is kind of interesting to know, okay? Um, that dynamic being true, um, we come to kind of the end of Jesus' birth. And then we come to Jesus being presented um, at the temple for purification. This little scene, starting in chapter 2, verse 22, is just another snippet uh, that says Jesus' family was a faithful Jewish family. And they were fulfilling the law. And yet, as Jesus is presented multiple times, what we have are other people who come up. Now we have Simeon. And what's Simeon doing? Waiting. He's waiting for God to keep his promises. And then we have Anna. Notice we have a man and a woman. 
guess what? That's going to be true throughout the rest of Luke's gospel. He's going to pair up a man and a woman and give testimony of both of them. It's like a court case, eyewitness testimony. Okay? So he has a man. Both of them are waiting. Both of them are older. Both of them are faithful. Both are and as Jesus comes, they're both going to give testimony that they have been waiting and that Jesus is this fulfillment of that testimony. So we have that little snapshot that Jesus is not coming out of a rebellious faction of Israel, but he actually is coming from a faithful remnant of Israel. And then they return back north from Jerusalem to Nazareth, which is where Jesus is going to be raised. A little town that's pretty obscure, a little mountain town, a little village, right outside a bigger city that's actually on the rise. Um, But we'll talk about that in a bit. But Jesus is kind of a small-town kid growing up. And then finally, the last snapshot in chapter 2, this little snapshot of Jesus coming back because you would need to come to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage festival at least one time a year. Old Testament says three. After the Jews had been spread out all over the kingdom, they was kind of narrowed down to one. You would come back for one pilgrimage festival. Passover was one of them. That's when they come back. Can you see the echo, though? Because at the end of the Gospel of Luke, what's going to happen? Passover is going to be when we finally get to our destination in Jerusalem. So we have a bookend, an echo of this festival. Passover is the celebration of what? Exodus. Wilderness wandering through the walking through the wilderness for 40 years, going into the promised land. Like that whole festival frames up Jesus' life and ministry. And so we have this little snapshot of Jesus age 12. It's not a surprise then. When Jesus is lost, Mark's sermon dealt with this. I'd encourage you, if you wanted to get into this one more detail, I'm going to move past this because he dealt with this in a sermon. It's not a surprise when Jesus gets lost. Families caravan together. Men tended to travel with men, women with women, but Jesus is right on the edge of whether he's a man or a boy. Is he with you, Mary? Is he with you, Joseph? I thought he was with you. They don't have cell phones, okay? And so there's a dynamic. Jesus left, but yet we're not surprised because Jesus, even as a boy, is already starting to be found in the temple. And so at the very end of the story, we have a snapshot of Jesus that says, no, 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 this is, this is what God's about ready to do. And Mary again is going, what's going to happen? And as a young mom, she's watching her boy grow up, and she's seeing little bits of evidence of what's going to be true. He's going to be teaching. He's going to be in the temple teaching. He's going to be seen as a teacher with authority. And there actually is going to be some moments where it's going to be frightening for her some separation between her and him. And there's little shots in this story of what life for Mary and recognize some of those things. Okay, we've walked through chapters one and two. Let me ask you, as you've read through that, um, and because we had an introduction today, we had to move through a little bit faster than we will the next few weeks. What other things did you observe or what questions came up with you? And then we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up here in the next couple minutes. What, what questions came up or what observations did you have? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, I don't understand the Holy Spirit a lot. Yeah. Really no, that's great. Yeah, so uh, the Holy Spirit, first of all, let me say this about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can do whatever the Holy Spirit wants. Yeah, I'll pre-read the question. How, the Holy Spirit comes upon John when John's just, I mean, a baby inside. He's still in his mother's womb. And I thought the Holy Spirit came on us at Pentecost, like when we made a decision to follow Jesus. It's a really good question. And the Holy, let me say two things about the Holy Spirit. One is this. One, the Holy Spirit can do whatever the Holy Spirit wants, because it's God. So, like, he act in, act in different ways, different times, and do whatever he wants. I'm, I don't want to put the Holy Spirit in a box, in other words. But here's what I do see the Holy Spirit when it comes to patterns in the Bible. 
Uh, in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit, Holy Spirit involved in creation. We've already said that. And rushing on people to empower them for a moment. And that moment might be a task, you know, defeat an army. Um, that moment might be to prophesy and say something. And I think this is that kind of example where the Holy Spirit, even though John is still in his mother's womb, is prompting John to be what's be. And the only way a baby can, right? Leap in his mother's womb, that, that gets her attention. I've never been pregnant. My wife has. But I know that when the baby's moving, even in the middle of the night, it gets her attention. And so the baby leaps. And it happens to be right at the moment when Jesus, the Messiah, is in Mary's womb. And the two of them have an encounter. So the, the Holy Spirit is prompting that. We can then move. Luke then gets us all the way to the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit then comes. And as we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and resides in us. And it is still for tasks and, but, and new creation, but it's ongoing. We are new creations in Jesus. We become more and more like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit equips us to do what we need to do. But it's, it's more long-lasting. Because um, even in the Old Testament, like Saul has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit rushes out of him and leaves him. And then comes upon David. And, and so Jesus now makes us the new temple where the Holy Spirit stays and resides. I think we can kick him out, but I think that's an intentional long process. Okay, That's a whole lecture we could have a conversation on. It's a really good question, though. Um, I, you know, I think that's important for us, maybe even some questions about, like, what do we believe about children, pre, pre-born children? There's an echo in Luke's gospel we have to pay attention to. Okay? All right, friends. Um, I know time today. Um, so let me give this assignment for us for next week. If you've not yet read chapters 1 through 2, add that to your reading. Read through chapters 1 through 4. But go ahead and read through chapter 4 either way. Um, we will be able to slow down a bit next week. So I may come back to chapters 1 and 2 and say, okay, we didn't get to all the questions. So ask that question. Like, go ahead and write that in your margin of your Bible. It could be an odd question. For instance, one question I had on Wednesday night was this. A lady asked, um, why did Elizabeth go into hiding when she was pregnant? You know what my answer was? I don't know that I know. I tried to give her an answer of here's what I maybe think. And then I had to go back and research it and come back. So write those questions down. I may have an answer for you. I may not. Um, But we want to ask more of those next week as we get together. So thank you all for listening to me talk quite a bit today. Um, And and even the course of the week, you're you're welcome to message me, email me, and we'll get some of those out. Let me pray for us. We'll be done. Father, I thank you again for the opportunity we have. Um, God, help us to walk with Jesus, to learn about him. God, to be empowered by him. Um, God, to uh, be changed by him. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.